Section 16 of Essays on Art. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Essays on Art by Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. Translated by Samuel Gray Ward. Section 16 The Collector and His Friends. Letter 6. Characters. I read by Todd. Guest read by Stacy Dugan Wilcox. Uncle read by Alan Mapstone. Julia read by Rapunzelina. Our worthy friend gives me leave to sit down to his writing table, and I am his debtor not only for this confidence, but also for the opportunity of addressing you. He calls me the philosopher. I am sure he would call me the scholar, if he knew how strong my desire is to cultivate myself, how much I wish to learn. But unfortunately, it gives us an appearance of presumption in men's eyes, if we only think we are in the right road. You will pardon my taking so forward a part in the conversation last evening concerning art, having so little experience in the matter, and only possessing some literary acquaintance with the subject, when you have heard my story, and see how I confined myself to generalities, and that I founded my right to a voice principally upon my knowledge of ancient poetry. I will not deny that I was roused by the way in which my opponent behaved toward my friend. I am still young, and perhaps am apt to be angry unseasonably, and so deserve still less the title of philosopher. The words of my opponent concerned me, too, for if the connoisseur, the lover of art, will not give up the beautiful, the student in philosophy cannot suffer the ideal to be classed among chimeras. And now I will repeat, so far as I can remember, the thread and general tenor of our conversation. I. Will you allow me also to put in a word? The guest, somewhat scornfully, with all my heart, and I hope not concerning air figures. I have some acquaintance with the poetry of the ancients, but have little knowledge of the plastic arts. That I regret, for in that case we can hardly come to an understanding. And yet the fine arts are nearly related, and the friends of the separate arts should not misunderstand each other. Let us hear what you have to say. The old tragic writers dealt with the stuff in which they worked, in the same way as the plastic artists, unless these engravings, representing the family of Niobe, give an altogether false impression of the original. They are passably good. They convey an imperfect, but not a false impression. Now then, so far forth, we can take them for a ground to go upon. What is it, you assert, of the treatment of the ancient tragic writers? The subjects they chose, especially in the early times, were often of an unbearable frightfulness. Were the ancient fables insupportably frightful? Undoubtedly, in the same manner as your account of the lacoon. Did you find that also unbearable? I ask pardon. I meant the thing you describe, not your description. And the work itself also? By no means the work itself, but that which you have seen in it the fable, the history, the skeleton, that which you name the characteristic. 
For if the lacoon really stood before our eyes such as you have described it, we ought not to hesitate a moment to dash it to pieces. You use strong expressions. One may do that as well as another. Now then for the ancient tragedies. Yes, these insupportable subjects. Very good. But also this supportable, this bearable, this beautiful, grace-begetting treatment. And that is effected by means of simplicity and still greatness? So it appears. By the softening principle of beauty? It can be nothing else. And the old tragedies were, after all, not frightful. Hardly, so far as my knowledge extends, if you listen to the poets themselves. In fact, if we regard in poetry only the material which lies at the foundation, if we are to speak of works of art, as if in their place we had seen the actual circumstances, then let us give up the tragedies of Sophocles as loathsome and horrible. I will not argue concerning poetry. Nor I concerning plastic art. Yes, it is best for each to stick to his own department. And yet there is a common point of union for all the arts wherefrom the laws of all proceed. And that is? The soul of man. Aye, aye. That is just the way with you gentlemen of the new school of philosophy. You bring everything upon your own ground and province. And in fact, it is more convenient to shape the world according to your ideas than to adapt your notions to the truth of things. There is no question of any metaphysical dispute. If there were, I should certainly decline it. I will for the present put nature out of the question, and we will consider only of man, with whom art necessarily concerns itself, for art exists only through man and for man. Whither tends all this? You yourself, when you make character the end of art, appoint the understanding, which takes cognizance of the characteristic as the judge. To be sure, I do. What I cannot seize with my understanding does not exist for me. Yet man is not only a being of thought, but also of feeling. He is a whole, a union of various closely connected powers, and to this whole of man the work of art is to address itself. It must speak to this rich unity, this simple variety in him. Do not carry me with you into this labyrinth, for who could ever help us out again? It will then be best for us to give up the dispute, and each retain his position. I shall at least hold fast to mine. Perhaps a means may still be found, whereby if one does not take the other's position, he can at least observe him in it. Propose it, then. We will, for a moment, contemplate art in its origin. Good. We will accompany the work of art on its road to perfection. But only by the way of experience, if you expect me to follow, I will have nothing to do with the steep paths of speculation. You will allow me to begin at the beginning? With all my heart. A man feels an inclination for some object. Suppose a single living being. As, for instance, this pretty lapdog. Come, Bella. It is no small honor to serve as example in such a discussion. Truly the dog is well enough, and if the man we are speaking of had the gift of imitation, he would try, in some way, to make a likeness of it. But let him prosper never so well in his imitation, we are still not advanced, for we have at best only two bellows instead of one. 
I will not interrupt, but wait and see what is to come of this. Suppose that this man, to whom for the sake of his talent we will give the name of artist, has by no means satisfied himself as yet, that his desire seems to him too narrow, too limited, that he busies himself about more individuals, varieties, kinds, species, in such wise that at last not the creature itself, but the idea of the creature stands before him, and he is able to express this by means of his art. Bravo! That is just my man, and his work must be characteristic. No doubt. And there I would stop and go no farther. But we go beyond this. I stop here. I will continue the search with you. By this operation we arrive at a canon useful indeed, and scientifically valuable, but not satisfactory to the soul of man. How, then, are you going to satisfy the wonderful demands of this dear soul? Not wonderful. It is only not satisfied in its just claims. An old tradition informs us that the Elohim once took counsel together, saying, Let us make man after our own image. And man says, therefore, with good cause, Let us make gods, and they shall be in our image. We are getting into a dark region. There is only one light that can aid us here. And that is? Reason. How far it be a guide or a will-o'-wisp, it is hard to say. We need not give it a name. But let us ask ourselves what are the demands the soul makes of a work of art. It is not enough that it fills up a limited desire, that it satisfies our curiosity, or gives order and stability to our knowledge. That which is higher must be awakened in us. We must be inspired with reverence and feel ourselves worthy of reverence. I begin to be at a loss to comprehend you. But I think I am able to follow in some measure. How far I will try to make clear by an example. We will suppose our artist had made an eagle in bronze which perfectly expressed the idea of the species. But now he would place him on the sceptre of Jupiter. Do you think it would be perfectly suitable there? It must be so. I say no. The artist must first impart to him something beyond all this. What then? It is hard to be expressed. So I should think. And yet, something may be done by approximation. To it, then. He must give to the eagle what he gave to Jupiter, in order to make him into a god. And this is? The godlike, which in truth we should never become acquainted with, did not man feel and himself reproduce it. I continue to hold my ground, and you may lose yourself among the clouds. I see that you mean to indicate the high style of the Greeks, which I prize only so far as it is characteristic. It is something more to us, however. It answers to a high demand, but still not the highest. You seem to be very hard to satisfy. It beseems him to demand much for whom much is in store. Let me be brief. The human soul is in an exalted position when it reverences, when it adores, when it elevates an object and is elevated by it again but it cannot remain long in this state. 
the conception of character leaves it cold. The ideal raises it above itself. But now it must return again into itself, and would gladly enjoy once more that affection which it then felt for the individual, without coming back to the same limited view, and will not forego the significant, the spirit-moving. What would become of it now if beauty did not step in and happily solve the riddle? She first gives life and warmth to the scientific, and breathing her softening influence and heavenly charm over even the significant and the high, brings it back to us again. A beautiful work of art has gone through the entire circle. It becomes again an individual that we can embrace with affection, that we can make our own. Have you done? For the present, the little circle is completed. We have come back to our starting point. The soul has made its demands, and those demands have been satisfied. I have nothing further to add. Here our good uncle was peremptorily called away to a patient. It is the custom of you philosophic gentlemen to engage in battle behind high-sounding words, as if it were an aegis. I can assure you that I have not now been speaking as a philosopher. These are mere matters of experience. Do you call that experience, whereof another can comprehend nothing? To every experience belongs an organ. Do you mean a separate one? Not a separate one, but it must have one peculiarity. And what is that? It must be able to produce. Produce what? The experience. There is no experience which, being produced, elaborated, will not create. Now that is too bad. This is particularly the case with artists. Indeed. How enviable would the portrait painter be? What custom would he not have if he could reproduce all his acquaintance without troubling people with so many sittings? I am not deterred by your instance. But, Father, am convinced no portrait can be worth anything that the painter does not, in the strictest sense, create. The guest springing up. That is too much. I would you were making game of me, and this were only in jest. How happy I should be to have the riddle explained in that manner. How gladly would I give my hand to a worthy man like you. Unfortunately, I am quite in earnest, and cannot come to any other conclusion. Now I did hope that in parting we should take each other's hand, especially since our good host has departed, who would have held the place of mediator in our dispute. Farewell, mademoiselle. Farewell, sir. I will send to inquire to-morrow whether I shall wait on you again. So he stormed out of the door, and Julia had scarce time to send the maid, who was ready with a lantern, after him. I remained alone with the sweet child, for Caroline had disappeared some time before. I think about the time that my opponent had declared that mere beauty without character must be insipid. "'You have done ill, my friend,' said Julia, after a short pause. "'If he did not seem to me altogether in the right, neither can I give unqualified assent to you, for your last assertion was only made to vex him. The portrait painter must make the likeness a pure creation?' "'Fair Julia,' I replied, how much I could wish to make myself clear to you upon this point. Perhaps in time I shall succeed. But you, whose lively spirit is at home in all regions, who not only prize the artist,
but in some sense transcend him, and who know how to give form to what your eyes have never seen, as if it stood bodily before you. You should be the last to start when the question is of creation, of production. I see it is your intention to bribe me. That will not be hard, for I am glad to listen to you. Let us think well of man, and not trouble ourselves if what we say of him may sound a little bizarre. Everybody admits that the poet must be born. Does not everyone ascribe to genius a creative power? And no one thinks he is repeating a paradox. We do not deny it to works of fancy. But the inactive, the worthless man, will not believe in the good, the noble, the beautiful, either in himself or others. Whence came it if it did not spring from ourselves? Ask your own heart. Is not the method of intercourse born with intercourse? Is not the capacity for good deeds that rejoices over the good deed? Whoever feels keenly without the wish to express that feeling? And what do we express but what we create? And in truth, not once only, that it exists and there an end, but that it may operate, ever increase, and again exist, and again be reproduced. This is the godlike power of love, of the singing and speaking of which there is no end, that it reproduces at every moment the noble features of the beloved object, perfects it in the least particulars, embraces it in the whole, rests not by day, sleeps not by night, is enchanted with its own work, is astonished at its own restless activity, ever finds the familiar new, because at every moment it is recreated in the sweetest of all occupations. Yes, the picture of the beloved cannot grow old, for every moment is the moment of its birth. Today I have been a sad transgressor. I have acted contrary to my resolution, by speaking on a subject which I have not fathomed, and I am at this moment on the way to a still greater transgression. Silence becomes the man who feels himself yet unformed. Silence also becomes the lover who dares not hope to be happy. Let me depart before I am doubly guilty. I seized Julia's hand. I was much moved. She tenderly retained it. Pray heaven that I do not err, that I have not erred. But let me proceed with my narration. My uncle came back. He was so friendly as to praise in me what I blamed in myself. Was delighted that my ideas on art agreed with his. He promised shortly to give me the practical instruction I needed. Julia also playfully promised me her lessons if I would be more conversable, more sympathizing, and I feel she can make of me whatever she will. The maid returned from lighting the stranger. She was highly satisfied with his liberality, for he had given her a handsome gratification. But she praised his politeness still more highly, for he had dismissed her with a friendly word, and moreover called her Pretty Maid. I was not in a humor to spare him, and exclaimed, Ah, oh, yes, I can easily credit that one who denies the ideal should take the common for the beautiful. Julia playfully reminded me, that justice and moderation were also an ideal that man must strive after. It was now late, and my uncle imposed a service upon me, whereby I might also serve myself. He gave me a copy of that letter to you, where he speaks of the various kinds of lovers of art. He also gave me your answer, and desired me to study the two, and arrange my thoughts on the subject, 
and to be present when the expected company of strangers came to visit his cabinet, and see if we could not discover and describe more classes. I spent the rest of the night over this task, and have drawn up a scheme, which is pleasant at least, if not profound, and has the merit that it gave Julia a good laugh this morning. Now, farewell. I note that this letter is to go with my uncle's, now lying on the writing-table. I have only ventured to look hastily over what I have written. How much is there to alter, how much to define more clearly? Yes, if I did as my feelings prompt, these sheets would go into the fire instead of the post. But if only the perfect were to be communicated, how ill would it fare with all conversation? Meantime, blessed be our guest for putting me in such a passion, and causing my effervescence, which led to this intercourse with you, and opened the way to new and fair relations. End of section 16